All right, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Future Ear Radio Podcast. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Jennifer McCatchy. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I uh, wanted to have you on as an audiologist who, um, you know, a practice owner who's now skilled their practice from one clinic to three clinics. Um, I thought it would be really interesting to just kind of hear your career trajectory and, and arc. Uh, so why don't we go back to the start with your story? Um, how did you find your way into audiology? Okay, um, sort of in a roundabout way. I had graduated and, and maybe a little different than the typical past. Um, my undergrad degree is in communication and um, had graduated with that degree, sort of thinking I may go into um, media, journalism type. Um, my my minor was political science. So I had this real kind of interest in um, news and news media, things like that. Um, but uh, didn't find a clear sort of path to get into it and um, ended up working retail. So I was in retail management, which um, wasn't my first choice and thought, um, you know, I'm not <laughs> I'm not doing this for the rest of my life and um, decided, you know, I'm, I'm going to go back to school. But I didn't know at that point in time, really what I wanted to pursue. So it took a couple of years off and um, waitressed and kind of researched different pathways. And uh, during that process, I was taking some sign language classes. And um, in that program, it was a full interpreting program. I knew I didn't have sort of the personality to be an interpreter, but learned more about um, the deaf culture and the deaf world. And in one of those classes, they talked about audiology and it really piqued my interest. As a um, young person growing up, one of my best friends, her brother was deaf. So it, it always sort of fascinated me. And he was kind enough when I was in this interpreting program to take me into uh, a deaf club where, so I was the only hearing person in you know, a room full of people who were deaf, who were signing. And so I was the one that had communication issues in that uh, environment. And so it was really eye-opening to me and gave me a different perspective. And so, you know, I started researching programs in the state um, and I ended up at Southern Connecticut State University, which now um, has audiology as part of their speech program, but doesn't have a doctoral program. You know, UConn is the only one in our state now. Um, but it was a very small program, so we got really individualized attention, and I felt like uh, I have found what I was looking for, you know. So, um, was able to kind of foster my my passion and learn what about audiology I enjoyed, which it it always kind of happened to be hearing aids. Really had a big interest in that, and then worked in uh, ENT offices for a long time in the early part of my career. Stopped when I had very young kids and I actually took about an eight year hiatus from working. And during that time, I contemplated, you know, do I really want to go back? You know, life was changing and um, technology. So to give you a frame of reference, when that happened, digital hearing aids were just coming on the scene. So the wide extenso, this is a long time. <laughs> 
And so here, you know, hearing aids at that point in time, they were um, really pretty primitive. You know, we had screwdrivers. We had a couple of things that we could change. You know, we did we did rely on real ear measurements really uh, to show us what those hearing aids were doing. Um, you had to you had to know that. So that's where my um, background in real ear came, knowing the difference really are made at that point in time. Um, but, you know, it was frustrating to work with hearing aids. There was only so much we could do for people and feedback was a constant battle. And um, so the technology was not on our side at that point in time. What we had, what we had, and we could help people the best we could. So the ENT I worked for once my daughter was about um, five going into kindergarten and I had more time, my youngest daughter, the ENT that I had previously worked for needed some help. And he said, you know, you can do any hours you want to do. And it's like, uh, okay, you know, I might as well. I needed some adult mental st- stimulation. <laughs> and, and so, uh, and as soon as I got back into it, you know, and again, at that time, we're talking digitally programmable, mm-hmm. programmable. They weren't even fully digital yet. But just the exciting things now that were happening in hearing aids, I got right back into it, you know, kind of sucked back into it. (laughs) From there, I uh, worked in ENT for a while and then um, knew I wanted to do something more. So um, fast forward to a different position at a private practice and I felt, oh, this is this is where I want to be. This is where I can practice the way that um, will help people the most you know i really oh ent you know serves a purpose and we're we're um helping those physicians diagnose very serious medical conditions and things but the hearing aid the rehab part of it you just don't have at least where i was you just don't have enough time um, to do it the way i would like to do it so private practice i really felt like i found my home there and then working for someone else i thought I really want to be doing this for myself. Um, okay, I want to I want to just take a quick pause there and, and comment sure. on two things. I I want to unpack that last point, but first I just want to make a comment because a couple episodes ago I had uh, Dave Fabry on from Starkey, and you know I I just kind of going off what you said about this the technology and the leap that it took between sort of the eight year hiatus before and after. I think that's just a very interesting point because, you know, uh, in some of the previous conversations that I've had on this podcast um, about what, you know, retailing hearing aids and selling hearing aids in the 90s and the early 2000s were like versus what it's like now. I think that um, especially for some of the younger professionals, like I don't think that they're, that like it, it's appreciated or, um, you know, that point of just how much better off it is, you know, in this whole like industry, given that the technology has progressed to the point to where it's just so night and day different. Um, And I think that the way that would like translate into market data or something like that would just be the patient satisfaction rate. But I just think about this job and how challenging it must have been when the product was so inferior to what it is today, Um, which is like kind of to, to your point, it was almost like shocking when you came off your hiatus to see how dramatically better it had be had become. Yeah, no question. And I, I when I think back and I, I uh, take students from UConn here and, and I'll 
kind of always give a little history lesson on hearing devices because it really, when I sit back and think about it, it's mind blowing the 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 advances that we have had in technology, and and I feel really uh, grateful to to have seen all of that. Makes me feel a little old sometimes, sometimes <laughs> but um, it it is um, it's hard to kind of uh, explain to students sometimes exactly what we were working with and how we would have to even order hearing aids. You had to know a lot about what that hearing aid did to order the correct tech, you know, technology at the time for the patient sitting in front of you. Um, you had to be really familiar with the circuitry because you, you were ordering the circuit that you wanted. You were right. ordering the matrix that you needed. And um, it wasn't where you could just hook it up to a computer, show it the the audiogram that you have and you're, you know, you, Obviously, right. you have no, to do that, that to some degree now, but it, it was, I think you, you almost had to know more. Well, I think that it's, but it's very interesting, like how that has all been, um, I think we look at like the today's landscape and you can just see that, like, to your point, it goes all the way to matching people to the proper solution. And so you hear a lot of these adages that you know, I think are kind of becoming outdated, which is a good thing, but it's like, you know, people that uh, buy a pair of hearing aids and they put them in the desk drawer and they never use them again. And, um, you know, some of these like notions of how they're essentially alluding to the hit or miss, you know, ratio of patient satisfaction. Some people maybe, you know, you were able to match them to something that was, that worked well, but like, man, there was a lot of feedback with that, you know? And so there's just so many things that gave people a reason to, to abandon the whole pursuit of this. And I think that is a big reason why there's still this negative connotation that people have with this whole, this whole model and everything is because a lot of it's rooted in um, previous generations, past experiences. And I think it's important for, for all of us to recognize that progression and, and appreciate where it is now, because I do think that like it's so dramatically advanced in 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 every regard, and I think that um, that's a really positive aspect of the technology, if you will. Absolutely, and just as you were talking about that, I'm thinking, you know, we didn't have Ricks back then. We were <laughs> dealing with either you know traditional behind the ears with uh, custom ear molds or ITE, so occlusion for people with you know normal lows or near normal lows. Again, it was hard to get them to get help because as soon as you put those hearing aids in, boy, it was hard to deal with that occlusion. So we can help just a greater range of people now because of the technology that we have. Um, and yeah, feedback, I, you know, nightmares about feedback. <laughs> just trying to control it. Um, but you learned, you know, learned a whole lot about um, how hearing aids work and and. A lot of that stuff, you know, translates to the products that we're working with now and in a lot of ways. Experience experience matters. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the other point I wanted to kind of unpack that you were making was, you know, the the point you made about um the transition from working in an ENT to a private practice. And you said, I just didn't feel like I had the the amount of time um or the autonomy to to sort of facilitate the kind of rehab treatment that that you had wanted 
Can you unpack that a little bit and just describe maybe what specifically it was in, you know, when you're operating in something like, you know, call it like, you know, obviously this is generalist generalizing, but like a standard ENT clinic versus what that was like when you moved into a private practice. Was it just so dominant with like the diagnostics and you were like turning people out or can you just speak to that a little bit? I find that interesting. Uh, yeah, sure. And I can talk. I worked in, um, I guess, two different offices that were fairly similar in the way that they ran. I think it's fairly standard with most ENT offices where you you have your own schedule, but the physicians uh, can bring back uh, a stat test anytime. So we would call it that, you know, the, the chart would back when we all had paper charts, the chart would be in the box, you know, so we, we would sometimes have, you know, five or six charts, people waiting to be tested while you're trying to do a hearing aid fitting. But, but you know, you got all those people waiting to have right. tests. Um, and the physicians relied on our test results to do what they needed to do. Um, so it was just kind of this constant pressure to move things along. And, you know, even if you wanted to spend more time, it was difficult to do that. That's interesting. Um, okay. So then kind of going back to your story of you, you make this transition, you start working at a private practice. Where does, where do things go from there? So it was so nice to have a schedule that was all yours and you were in, um, and I guess it depends on the private practice that you're working at. And, you know, I happen to have a, you know, a boss who, who, while she wanted a full schedule, I was free to modify it as I needed and was able, and it just felt like even the normal appointment time that we had there allowed for a whole lot more counseling to happen. And you were you were the professional, right? So they they weren't seeing somebody else after you who was then going to talk to them about the hearing loss. It was you that was counseling them about their hearing loss and the effect and, and their need for hearing aids. Whereas sometimes in the ENT office, while we could have a short conversation, they would ultimately go back to the ENT, who was the one that would then make that stronger recommendation. So it was on you now to um, have that conversation with the patient. And so, you know, I had to learn, I think, better counseling techniques and um, learn how to do the sort of motivational interviewing in the beginning of the appointment to get what the patient needed out of that visit. And then, you know, where are we going with it and making the, the patient, a you know, partner in their care and knowing that you are the one responsible for that. They're not going to somebody else after they see you who is then going to do some of this work. Um, and I just love the fact that uh, while you might have your next appointment waiting, you didn't have multiple people waiting to see you and there wasn't there wasn't that pressure. Yeah, that's interesting. So the, basically the patient flow was more manageable. You felt like you could dedicate more time. I mean, in your in your eyes, what is a proper um, hearing aid fitting allotment of time, that initial visit? Uh, in my office, we do an hour. I think that can vary based on if it's a new user versus a brand uh, new patient. Right, right. Um, versus somebody who's worn hearing aids for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, that certainly will vary. But, you know, in terms of doing the programming and the verification, 
and um, some education around whatever new product that they are using. An hour is what we allot. Um, we also, we have audiology assistants here. So there are times if we have a really full schedule and we need to ship some of the duties of the fitting to not the actual programming, um, but in terms of instructing them to put them in their ear and take them out and show them how to use the volume control, how to set up their Bluetooth. We will use audiology assistance for a lot of that stuff. So if we have to shorten the appointment, they can kind of take over and do some of the the non-audiological stuff. That's really cool. Okay, we'll come back to that piece. Um, but going back to your story about, <clears throat> so you're at the practice. When did you become the, was it this practice that you bought or did you end up starting your own practice? When did you become a practice owner? So the, the practice that I worked in um, is not the first location of Best Life, but it is one of the, the uh, locations that I took over. Okay. While I was working there, my mother got very ill. And as I was with her, it was a very quick illness and she passed away um, within five months of getting sick. And it was one of those life events that changes you. And um, I remember thinking at the time, you know, I'm not getting any younger. She was 68 when she died um, and I was uh, 49. And I thought, and, and her mother before her had also died at 68. So I just had this thought process. If I only have this many years left on this planet, what do I want to do with the rest of my life? And and um, private practice ownership was something that I always wanted, but sort of was a little bit nervous to take the leap. It is, it's a scary thing. Um, but at that point in time, I said, you know what, either I'm going to do it now or I'm not going to do it at all. And so um, when I came back to work after... Being with my mom, uh, I said to the owner at the time that uh, I was going to be leaving and start my own practice. And at that, you know, started to investigate what I needed to do to do that. Um, did a lot of prep work. Uh, but I always say, no matter how prepared you think you are, <laughs> it's going to be an adventure. Um, and it was, yeah. Did I fully answer your question? Absolutely. No, I think this is, it's really interesting. Um, You know, I just, I think that there are these kind of like life moments that happen that change your whole perspective. So uh, you go off, you strike off and you're going to do your own thing. Uh, Where, where, where's the first location of Best Life? Where in Connecticut? Uh, So we're in Wallingford, Connecticut. And I had done a lot of research around location, looked at multiple, um, towns and my my kind of theory is that if there's one good private practice Connecticut towns are not huge in general and um, it would be hard to compete against another really good established private practice so I really wanted to go somewhere where there was not that um, so Wallingford happened to have a big rehab hospital that had an audiology department for like 30 plus years that a few years before had closed the department. And so I knew there were a lot of people looking for a new home, new, you know, new audiology home, and uh, kept coming back to Wallingford as really a, a good place. You know, I, I'd had some people tell me, well, you know, other people have tried things there and it hasn't really worked. But 
I said, you know what, this is it's a it's a good sized town with a need for audiology. So this is where I landed. And it was close enough that a lot of my, you know, former patients could follow me. Um I I'm just thinking back in my yeah, mind, yeah. you know, about that time period. Uh it was certainly stressful. <laughs> and, um but you know, I wouldn't change anything for the world. It was it was um, character building, we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I was going to ask, like, you know, what what really stands out in your mind if you kind of chronicle this period, right? So, what what really stands out about like maybe some of those initial fears before you even took the plunge um, when you were doing your due diligence to decide, you know, like if this is going to work or not, um, you know, and then maybe those first few formative years of, of owning a clinic and, and what stands out in terms of some things that maybe were challenging or things that you really were surprised by, some success stories, you know, whatever it might be. When you mm-hmm. think back to this period when you were just sort of getting your feet underneath you, what stands out in your mind? Initially, of course, you're thinking, will anybody, I'll open the doors, will anybody show up? You know, yeah, um, for sure. <laughs> that's the that's the biggest fear. The challenge in the beginning was getting credentialed with the insurance companies, and I I figured at I have the time. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it myself, <laughs> and I did do a lot of it myself. But I I did it one after very stressful months. Um, get other people involved, but you know I went to uh, Kim Cavett's boot camp, I learned. And I had, in my previous positions, immersed myself in the insurance piece of it. Um, I felt like it was my duty to know if I was talking to a patient about their benefit, it was my duty to know as much of, as much as I could about what they could expect to be paying. And so I really um, had a, a long history of working with either the insurance company directly or with our billing department on the billing. Um, it was something that I um, really felt was important to know, even though it's, you know, it's not fun. It's not a fun part of what we do, but I think it's important. So even with all that background in it, it was a challenge. Um, very stressful. Uh, I got. I, I remember I got shingles during that point in time, and the doctor looked at me. He said, "Are you under any stress?" I'm like, oh yes, I don't. <laughs> um, so get your shingles shot, everyone. If, if you are fifty or over, um, so that was the biggest challenge going into it: getting credential with the insurance companies. Because of course, the first question people ask is, "You know, do you take my insurance?" Um, and we still deal with that challenge. We can go there later with managed care and all of that. And marketing, you know, learning how to market your business. I had, I had someone, it was actually at one of the manufacturers when I was talking about starting up the business. Um, Somebody at one of the manufacturers had given me some really good, what I think is really good advice. He said, um, get yourself some used equipment and spend your money on marketing. And I thought, really does make a lot of sense. So I did exactly that. You know, I found a used booth that fit my space perfectly. I was able to find some really good um, 
audiometer, tympanometer, OEEs used, but still in great shape. And so the investment in the equipment wasn't outrageous. And then I could take uh, the funds that I had and invest into marketing. And then I fell in love with marketing. You know, I really enjoy that aspect of it. Um, so that's been a fun part of building the business is learning more because as we know, if, if we knew exactly what worked all the time, everybody'd be doing it. <laughs> so it's like, it's a, it's a moving target For sure. and you know, it's fun when things work and not so fun when they don't. Um, but that's all part of, it's all part of business ownership and, um, part of what I love about it. Yeah. So, um, okay. So you, you kind of, you, you, you cross that threshold, you establish yourself, you know, you, you kind of, um, become capable of, of, uh, hand or I guess taking insurance, um, or certified if you will. Um, and then you also start to market your practice and, and, you know, go down the route of starting to drum up business. Um, so then you, you kind of progress and where, where does your, your story then kind of lead? Um, I know you have multiple clinics now. What was that period like between getting to the point to where you were ready to expand? So I opened the practice in April of 2019. And if you think about the time period between 2019 and now, <laughs> and now we had something called COVID. Uh-huh. And so, um, about a year into it, I had two things happen. One is we had a fire in our building and my entire space got flooded. So I had to, I had to close down for like a week. And I thought that was just awful. Um, but okay, we closed down, we got it all dried out back in business. And we were, we were actually having a really good sort of, um, I remember it was March at the time. And then this, we started hearing about this thing called COVID. And as it got deeper into it and okay, a month after that flood, I had to close the practice down or COVID. And uh, it was a scary, you know, scary time. I was only a, a year, a year old practice. And you didn't know, you know, everybody I'm sure has that memory of that period of time where you, you just didn't know what was going to happen. And when you close the doors, when could you open them again? You just didn't, you didn't know. And at that time, I was taking a lot of third party because I was a new practice and I was trying to get people in the door. And so it, it was actually a little bit of a saving grace because third party payments are lagging, right? They pay you about after the trial period. So I had money coming in from the third parties to at least pay my bills. And at that time, it was just me and one staff member. So um, it was manageable in terms of the bills. Um, got through about two months, about two months, we could open the doors. And I never stopped marketing during that time period. Um, you know, I was kind of looking at all of the different advice and looking at other sort of crises that have happened in our history. And while you feel like you want to shut the spigot off because mm-hmm. you don't want to pay for the marketing, everything that I was reading about history of of this kind of thing was don't stop. 
do some marketing in some fashion. We obviously couldn't do it all the traditional way and market the same things, but we could still let people know we were out there. So I did that. I, I continued to market. And so as soon as we could open the doors, which is about two months later, and I never really, I, I came to the office every day. I talked to patients on the phone every day. Um, I went out you know, to the car and gloves and masks and did repair. So I never fully just shut the doors and you can't communicate with us. Um, but as soon as we could open the doors and be fully operational, people were more than willing to come back in. So, you know, you breathe a little sigh of relief. And I think in that period, we were kind of tra tra transitioning out of the isolation periods and dealing with COVID. We now had protective gear and, and things like that. Um, then sort of went full steam ahead with the marketing and had explosive growth between then in 2020, 2021 was an amazing year for a lot of people because we had that um, demand buildup. We had people recognizing that they had hearing loss because of the masks. We had all of these factors and 2021 was this incredible year for us. You know, it was exciting. It'd be nice if it was like that every year. <laughs> <laughs> but it did, um, you know, allow me to think, okay, um, do I want to do more than this? And then that the practice I told you that ha I had been working at, um, I found out that, you know, the owner was interested in selling and he had, uh, and I, and I knew it was a great practice. I knew, um, a lot about it. So it just made sense to me. He had another practice in another town in Sonia that he basically said he wouldn't sell one without the other. And so, hey, what the heck? <laughs> what's, what's, what's another one? Yeah. Um, and, it, and this is another case of where as, as much work as you think it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be way more, <laughs> way more than that. <laughs> so the, the business transaction of actually purchasing those two um, additional offices took a, took a lot of time. I'm going to say a good seven, eight months to kind of get through that, you know, with uh, um, the financial piece of it, the legal piece of it, all of it. And it was, you know, th certainly there were times when I said, oh my, what am I doing? <laughs> what am I doing? And why am I doing this? You know, you, you do sort of have to think about why am I doing this? Um, because that is the thing about scaling, right? Does it make sense? Yep. You have this one office that seems to be chugging along pretty well. You know, why why would you do this? And certainly that went through my head. Um, but I felt like I knew this this other office, and I, I think um, my thinking was that's probably going to fall into corporate hands if I if I don't take it over, and I would like to see it stay in local independent practice but that is the challenge of having multiple locations how do you keep that independent local feel when now you have multiple locations you're in different and none of the locations are very far apart you know our, our farthest one is it's maybe a half hour you know we're about a half hour from each other but it's still um a lot of what i did to build up the wallingford location was local networking you know, talking to other business owners and um, working with the local physicians and things like that. 
being in the local newspaper. And now, okay, now I need to do that times three and you're one, as the owner, you're one person. So how do you get your staff to care enough to also want to do those things? And that I'm finding, well, there are a lot, there are a lot of challenges in, in doing this. That's one of them is keeping that local feel when you, on the other hand, want to create systems so that we're all doing a lot of things the same way. Right. Um, you want to keep that. Each office has its own. Um, yeah, it's kind of paradoxical. That. It's like you're trying to keep the, the like the, you know, the feel and the vibes of, of the original Best Life Hearing Center. But once you scale it, you sort of have to delegate. You have to give up, you know, some of that control. And really the, the byproduct of that is that, you know, maybe there are some inconsistencies that you're not crazy about. Um, but it's it's almost the trade-off of, of growth, right? And I guess that's probably one of your biggest challenges is how do you have the right, you know, hire the right personnel, have the right... Um, group that is bought into this, whatever you would kind of, um, however you would like distill down the essence of Best Life Hearing Center. And then like, what, how do you embody that more or less? That is a hundred percent the biggest challenge. You know, it's been about a year since I've had all three and we're still working on creating those systems because the other two, the other two, even though they had the same owner, functioned very independently. And so they each did things very differently and then very different from what we were doing here. So it has been a work in progress to get everybody on the same page in terms of all of the processes. And I, you know, I learned quickly that I needed to have some patience around that. Because I wanted it. everybody to do the same thing <laughs> we were doing right away, you know, and including so I use counselor as my OMS and they were using something different. And so when I transitioned and kind of threw counselor at them, you know, there's a there's a learning curve there that I didn't quite appreciate, appreciate totally. because now I had been using it. And so I needed to take a step back and um because it's it's such a great system, but you have to know how to enter the information so that it's usable on the other end. And um, and I would say that's still, and I learn things about counselor every day that we can um, utilize that maybe we're not. Um, so that's been challenging on many levels. And then conveying to the staff, you know, having this vision in your mind is not enough. You have to communicate it to the staff all the time. And when you're also a clinician and not just an owner, you know, when you have a busy patient schedule on top of uh, trying to run three offices, it did get to be too much for me. So I hired an office manager, you know, which has helped tremendously to help streamline things because she can be places when I can't be. And she, you know, that's her total focus is operations. So that was a huge, a huge uh, stress reliever for me to have that other person that can do a lot of the things that I was doing. For sure. I mean, the every time I have these conversations, they sort of bring to mind past episodes. And the one that's really coming to mind right now is the conversation I had with Jason Landecker, who has a, a chain of clinics in Minnesota. And um, 
kind of a similar trajectory, started out single location, multi-location. And I think what was very interesting about his story was how he has, and I'm sure you felt this too, is like you, you, you're not just a clinician, but you're an entrepreneur and, you know, so much of that side, like kind of starts to take over and dominates your, your time and your energy and all that. And, you know, a lot of that is like, as you scale, it's about becoming a leader. And so you have to figure out like, it's like all things with becoming an entrepreneur, which is you kind of almost have to teach yourself everything. You have to be self-taught for so much, you know, it's, that's, I think one of the biggest um, aspects of it. And so, you know, he was talking about how he cultivated really like the, in, in fostered leadership and, and, you know, how challenging that was because in, you know, in, innately wasn't really, um, the kind of person that was drawn to that, but you're sort of thrust into it. And so, you know, he had a lot of really interesting insight around how he was able to sort of foster that he, you know, made it, uh, an effort to like read a lot of these different books. And, um, you know, so much of it though, was like really actively working on his communication style to his team and, I just found this to be really interesting about, you know, again, you're you're not just an audiologist, but you're like this, you're also on this career arc of becoming more and more of this uh, entrepreneur and all that comes with it. And it's, you take on a lot and it's not something that you read out of a textbook. You sort of have to, um, you have to sort of experience it and learn from those experiences. And I just find that that element about private practice is so interesting because Every person you talk to, there's a lot of similarities, but everybody kind of had to strike out and learn this stuff on their own. And it's just fascinating to me to hear how people sort of teach themselves this stuff when you have to kind of almost seek it out and and just figure out a way to like acquire that that skill set more or less. Yeah, I can totally relate uh, to what you're saying about Jason. Um, I also really just devoured books on business, on leadership, on motivation. Um, always could talk about whatever book I'm reading. I'm just uh, reading Traction. You're familiar with that one. Um, and I also had a really great group of practice owners. Um, I, I So at the time when it was just the Wallingford office, I was with EarQ before EarQ and um, you know, aha merged and right. So now I'm with CQ Partners, but starting with the EarQ, we had this group of practice owners that started meeting actually during COVID, sort of my lifeline to be like, okay, what's happening out there? You know, <laughs> with other people, it was really, um, it was an important part of that time in in the practice development, and so it created some really strong um, relationships with other practice owners, people you could rely on for advice or um, to just commiserate with, you know, in the moment. And that uh, that group, every we, we met every week via Zoom and there was always a, a topic around mostly leadership, leadership motivation. Um, we talked a little bit about the nitty gritty, the operations and marketing and things, but it was really a lot of that leadership development. And so this group... Um, a lot of the same people continue to this day every Friday, you know, at noon we meet 
And so cultivating relationships like that has really helped me. I'm also in one of um, Don Hyman's entree audiology groups with these amazing practice owners that have been doing this a whole lot longer than me. And, you know, I have learned so, so much from them also. And that's been hugely important for me to not be just in this little bubble trying to figure it out on my own, to know there is support out there and people can lead you in the right direction. And even in other aspects of what I would have to do. So say when I was going through the legal stuff with with the um, practice acquisition, you know, I just found this really great lawyer who um, I feel like I, I could not have gone through this without her. She just was so smart in that things that I could never have known on my own. Yeah. Um, and same thing with my accountant. Like it took I'm on my third accountant because I was just never comfortable. Now I have someone I really um, can rely on and trust. So uh, knowing that just the relationship piece of all the other segments of what you do are so important um, that you you don't you don't you can't do it alone. You you got to find good people to do it with you. Yeah. yeah, I find that really interesting. Like I'm, again, there's uh, so many stories like this of. During the pandemic, people sort of found ways to um, to collaborate and, and, like you said, commiserate. And I think that a lot of people like kind of held on to a lot of that. And I think that that's been a positive byproduct of it is these groups that I think are pretty pervasive in this industry now of, um, you know, these small networks of like minded, you know, individuals that are in similar situations across the country that can share a lot of their experiences. And again, it's, I think this whole notion of like, people all can kind of relate to these things. Um, you know, managed care is a perfect example of it, right? Like, I think everybody <laughs> is kind of going through this right now of figuring out how do you adapt to that? Um, but it's a, it's an example that's a visceral example, um, that, uh, I think is a, the epitome of like, you could, you know, try to figure this out on your own. Sure. And I'm sure many people have and will, but I think a lot of people are working together in a sense of like, what is the right approach given my circumstances, given, you know, the, because again, it's not a universal thing. And I think that's, what's pretty, pretty cool about what I feel like I'm observing in this industry right now, which is, um, I haven't been in this industry all that long. I mean, I joined Oak Tree full time in 2016 or 2017, but it really does feel um, and I guess the pandemic maybe was the the, the marker of like the, when this shift really felt uh, like it took effect. But it feels like there's a sense of collaborativeness um, across the the professionals, particularly the audiologists that you know are um, doing a lot of this mind melding and, and sharing of of experiences. And so I think that again, it's uh, rising tide lifts all ships. But you know, I think everybody can doesn't need to think of each other as competition. I think that there's a lot of good that can come from just simply putting yourself out there and saying, these are the challenges I'm facing. Who else is facing similar challenges? What are you all doing to, to kind of solve these things? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and I know you and I had talked at one point about, you know, being a member of your state organization. And so even at the, the state level where truly some of us could be competition with each other, um, there there's a lot of that you know, collaboration 
happening, even with people in your own town or, you know, few towns over. Um, but we being part of the state organization and knowing that we're all working toward the same goals um, and there's enough people with hearing loss out there for everyone to service um, that I will try to kind of foster some of those connections sometimes. But that's why I do feel like it's important for me to be part of the state organization. And we're a small state. You know, we always say we're small but mighty. You know, our state organization has been really solid. You know, we had uh, Dr. Kathy Alex had started it and she was the president for many, many, many years and, and recently passed the torch. But there's been just a core group of people that have kept this organization strong and kept it going. And now we're in the um, situation where we're uh, needing new, younger audiologists to take part. And they have been. And it's been so nice to see their input and their perspective. And now they're, you know, we're planning our next conference and they're taking a, you know, a leadership role in that conference planning and just having that different perspective and seeing them also have that collaborative feel. It's, it's, it's so nice. Um, and we have also a strong, uh, you know, we have employ a lobbying group as your state organization does to keep an eye on audiology issues. Uh, you know, we have a strong lead on the uh, the governmental side of things, which is also so important these days with scope of practice issues and things like that. Um, so yes, join your state organization, be a part of it. I, <laughs> and oh, they sorry. always need help. Yeah, I mean, I've uh, I, with my job, I've I've um, traveled to a lot of state academies. Um, thank you for the invite to the Connecticut Academy and, and the invite to speak up there, um, because I will say that I, I was very impressed with, like you said, it's a small but mighty group. Um, it, it seemed like it was, I mean, it was a pretty crowded room um, for being a small state. There were quite a few audiologists there. It was, uh, in all honesty, one of the better state-run uh, academies that I had attended. So kudos to you all. You're definitely doing the right thing. And I'm I'm with you that I think that it's, you know, as somebody that's part of the younger cohort, I personally feel that it's very important for young people to be engaged in this stuff because I think that, A, you know, it's a great way to meet and network with everybody in your state. Um, but I think it gives you the opportunity to establish yourself and your voice, your generational perspective um, of the way that a uh, 30-something or a 20-something, you know, odd young professional is going to be thinking about this industry is going to be a lot different than somebody that's, you know, maybe at the tail end of their career that isn't thinking about what this space is going to look like in 10 to 20 years. And so I think that it's just, in my opinion, a really awesome way to establish yourself in your community as somebody that is engaged in wanting to progress things forward. Um, because I think that, you know, to your point, it's going to get to the point to where you're you're kind of the the um, heir apparent, more or less, of who's going to assume that role of leading the charge. And um, and so, again, I, I've just become very invested in this whole notion of like, because it, I speak to so many different audiologists in different parts of their career that all speak very positively about the effect that getting involved has had on their career. The last episode I just did with Tish Gaffney, you know, she really attributes so much of her 
career success to the fact that when she was really young, she got involved in what was NAFTA, which was the predecessor of Student Academy of Audiology. Didn't know that until I talked to her. Um, but it's, you know, one of those things where you just can, um, I think it just sets you up for things that you won't really realize are going to be secondary benefits of doing those, the types of doors that it's going to open. So again, that's my that's my testimonial of why I think it's important to be engaged in this stuff because it, it really, uh, I think it really does lend itself to future career opportunities that you you can't predict. Yeah, and I could tell a personal story on that note. So when I started on the board at the academy, um, I was working at the ENT office and uh, was on the board with um, someone who had previously worked at the ENT office. And she knew that I would um, would wanted to sort of get out of there and, and wanted to be in private practice. So when she heard of a, a practice opportunity, she and it was somebody else on the board, um, you know, kind of steered her in my direction. And so having that connection, and that was one of the things about private practice that I thought it's it's hard to get into a job at private practice because people will usually go the networking route as opposed to posting an ad. And so um, that was that was the way I got into a private practice was that, you know, somebody I knew knew somebody and introduced me and and said, you know, she's interested and, and that's how that worked out for me. And I've seen that happen in that space. And I think there is a part of, uh, there was always a part of me that wants to um, have a legacy of helping the profession. And, you know, that's why I take UConn students. I like to teach them. And I think what you were saying about, you know, young people bringing new perspectives, it's nice to have that balance of having the young people with new perspectives. And then the, I don't want to use the word old people. Yeah, <laughs> Um, but seasoned vets. There you go. I like it. <laughs> you know, having that historical perspective, um, just the mix of the two is really great. And and I think that especially helps when when we're looking at the legislation mm -hmm. and how it may affect us. You know, the seasons seasoned vets, as you call us. <laughs> you know, we might not. We may have a, a bigger uh, awareness of how a certain piece of legislation may affect us based on history. Um, so it is, I think it's really important to have that mix of people. And I think we have that now in Connecticut, which is really, really nice. That's cool. Um, so as we come to the close here, you know, uh, where you're at now versus where you were, you know, from the beginning, um, it's it's really cool to hear the, the progression. Um, so what, what does 2024, like, what are the things that you're excited about? What are kind of the, you know, I know we've talked about managed care being, you know, an obstacle, a challenge, um, but where's, you know, we're kind of at the start of the year, like what, what's on your forecast for, for your clinics and what are you, what's kind of top of mind for you right now? I would say it does have to do with managed care. I was crunching some 2023 numbers last week because, you know, numbers will always give you perspective that maybe didn't aren't aware of. Um, and looking at our managed care, so we currently take four different managed care plans. And uh, in crunching the numbers, we discovered that 
50% of our time goes to managed care patients, and it accounts for 15% of our revenue. And so that was really eye-opening. And I, you know, looking at what we're taking, I'm going to reduce the number from four companies to two companies. Um, and you know, it's always part of what I'm doing to see how we can manage managed care better. It just is that is going to continue, and it's going to be ongoing to to figure out how we do that. But that perspective that we're spending all of this time with this man with these. Um, you know, people with managed care that, of course, we, we want to help. And many of them are patients we have seen for a very long time that probably started out or did start out private pay and because of their change in insurance. Um, so, you know, you certainly want to continue to see those people. It, it's there are so many factors, you know, when you're looking at what plans do I take, what plans don't I take, but it has to work for you. You know, it has to. Um, the numbers have to make sense. So we're drilling down on that and how to fine tune that a little bit. We'll be working on continuing to work on our processes and, and systems. Um, hiring, I just have one position open right now, but looking at our hiring processes, there's so many things in, in 2024, but I'll just say it's always a work in progress. Like I know there's no destination we're going to reach and say, okay, we're done. You know, it's always going to be uh, continual. So, you know, I'll, I'll do it for as long as it, I enjoy it. I, this, I think that that whole notion of managing managed care is probably like if you had to boil down, you know, what the most popular topic would be at like AAA or something like that. I bet that would probably fill a room, uh, you know, fuller than- yeah, right. And and that is the interesting thing that there is no silver bullet. I mean, it's to your point, really hard to just say, well, I'm just not going to see managed care patients because what about all of your existing patients and all of the collateral damage that could do to your brand? Um, not to mention that it's just not consistent with most providers like that. They're in the business of helping people. So it's very, very challenging. But for me, again, this all kind of comes back to how how do you reconcile with that notion that's such a stark you know the the like a shocking statistic 50% of your time is dedicated to a segment of your customers that represents 15% of your revenue so like that to me is where i think that over the next few years the market will have to sort this out and i think that you know one of the ways that will be very interesting to watch is how you can sort of employ or deploy um, like audiology assistance and some of these different types of labor. And I just keep thinking that you, you, you have to find efficiencies and that seems to be one area that there's a lot of potential. But can you share maybe wh why that's not as simple as it is? I mean, how much of that, again, this is probably oversimplifying, but the the analogy that I always think about is the dental model, right? You only see the dentist for a small portion of time when you go in to get your teeth cleaned and you get the x-rays. You're primarily engaging with the hygienist. So what's the analogy to this industry? Is there an equivalent where you as the audiologist can go and you can spend a little bit of personal time with that patient who you've really enjoyed working with over the last you know, 10 years 
um, but you're not having to dedicate that whole patient visit. Can can that? I mean, is that like viable, or where does that whole like um, thinking break down? In your opinion, I think that's absolutely viable, and it is. It's the model that we're transitioning to here. You know, I, I referenced it a little bit when I was talking about the hearing aid fitting, um, but we do much like the dental model. If someone is coming in strictly for a hearing aid cleaning, they see the assistant. Um, I think the challenge that I have um, and where you know we'll be exploring um, how other people are doing this is um, charging appropriately and training it at the front desk who needs to see the assistant and who absolutely needs to see the audiologist. And so that because sometimes there's some confusion there and patients can be confused about why is this appointment more than this appointment. So there's a lot of patient education that goes around um, making them aware that it's similar to a dental model, that if you're coming in for the cleaning, the assistants are trained to work with your hearing aids in that way, but they're they're not gonna be programming the devices in any way for you. Let me ask you this question really quick. Um, when it comes to that patient education piece, do you find that the patient education is more warranted or I guess in more demand by the patients of those that are already existing patients and accustomed to this model um, versus the people that are brand new, not accustomed to this model, and maybe they're more receptive to it because it's more consistent with other healthcare models like the dental model? Uh, I would say that, yeah, you're spot on there that um, people that we have seen for a long period of time that are used to coming in to seeing the audiologist, even if they're just coming in for a cleaning you know, they like to chat with you. They like to be social with you. Um, and if if you're not doing much more than cleaning their hearing aid, then it makes sense to transition them to the assistant. But there will be some pushback sometimes, you know, so there is training on the staff level. And, uh, you know, I think it's important on the part of the audio audiologist to assure them you're, you're seeing someone who's more than capable of doing what you need them to do, that you're in great hands, and I will see you at your annual or whatever it will be. Um, and we are, I, I, we've successfully done this in in Wallingford and Cheshire. In uh, the other location, we're currently training an, an audiology assistant there so that model can be consistent in all three offices and so that the charges can be consistent in all three offices, that kind of thing. Um, and I do think that's the future because we have to deal with this lower reimbursement. We have to deal with um, seeing more people and effectively using our time um, so that we can remain profitable, you know, and be able to help as many people as possible at the same time. So I, I think that is the future. Yeah, I th that's sort of the the sense that I've been gathering is that it's the fact of the matter is, is that it's not going away. It's only going to become more pervasive in terms of whether it's managed care or just insurance, broadly speaking. Um, I think that this is just sort of part and parcel with like the way that things are moving where this is a benefit. And, you know, I think that here in this period of time right now, it's really challenging because it's so um, it, it's so inverted versus the existing model, which has really been lower patient volume, higher profitability per patient. And so I think that model is totally inverting right now. So it's painful. But I think the other side of this, and 
I don't know how it will shake out. I don't know if like the revenue opportunities are going to just be, I think what's undoubtedly going to happen is there's just going to be more people that are engaging with this model. Now, today, those patients are less profitable on a per patient basis because of the low reimbursement rates and because of the pervasiveness of managed care. But I think that what will become interesting to see is, are there other ways to generate revenue from those patients? You know, Maybe it will be things like new treatments, like Lanier or something that's for totally different kinds of, um, you know, symptoms that are, you know, pretty consistent with a lot of the patients where, you know, in the past you're predominantly just, you know, facilitating treatment for amplification. Maybe in the future you're also doing a lot of treatment for tinnitus. And, you know, so again, I just think that it's not yet to be seen what that's going to look like, but I think that what is the exciting aspect of this is that more people are coming into the office. And I think what will be really interesting in like a few years is how can you monetize those people for a lack of better words um, in a way that isn't egregious. You know, it's just, I think that again, like maybe the best place to be looking are some of these adjacent healthcare industries to see because this has all already happened in their industries. Um, you know, what what did dental do when when this all kind of transpired? Well, they they started to diversify into different little ancillary add-on services. You could get your teeth whitened, you know, you could do these different kinds of services that, you know, you could buy more or less when you came into the office. So I think that it's just sort of a it's hard to, you know, I, I always take a optimistic viewpoint, but I can see how it's like, you know, it's easier said than done, but it does seem to me that there is a light at the end of the tunnel here um, in the sense that I personally think that imagine the inverse of this. Imagine if, you know, less people were coming in and your profitability was getting slashed. Um, you know, the reason that the profitability is getting slashed is because so many people are coming in now. Um, it's It's, you know, like economies of scale more or less. Yeah, you're, I, I think what you were talking about in terms of adding services, that's been something we've been working on. Also, you know, in Wallingford, um, we've been doing more and more cerumen removal. And that we, in this office, we happen to have a nice space to do it. And in the other offices, it's a little more challenge, challenging to figure out where we can offer full, you know, um, irrigation suction, annual cerumen removal. Um, it's harder to do it in the, in the other offices, but I'm I'm trying to figure out a way because I think that's something here that people have been, um, they've had bad experiences elsewhere. They um, the convenience of being able to do it right when you see it and not having to reschedule an appointment to send them out to do it. It's that has been. Um, one of the things, you know, the add-on ancillary services that you're referring to. And I am always looking for things like that because I also agree with you that is what we should be. We should be audiology specialty care. That's what we are. And um, that's obviously been a topic in the industry that, um, you know, hearing aids alone are probably not going to do it for you in the future. But there are so many opportunities out there. I think my challenge, my challenge is, oh, there's all these shiny objects, right? And <laughs> I need to focus. 
And the fact of the matter is we also want to be really good at hearing aids because Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of not great hearing aid care out there. And so we want to be the place that's known when you go there, you're going to get specialized care. We're not just popping first fit devices on your ears, you know, and have a nice day. Um, So I also want that to be our primary focus because we know we're good at that. Um, But I am always looking for, you know, other services to add because I think you're right about that. You know, we need to look at what does specialty care mean and what should we be offering? Couldn't agree more. Well, Jennifer, this has been a really interesting and fun conversation. Thanks so much for coming on today. I've really enjoyed hearing your story. So thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. We will chat with you next time. Cheers.